Well, as you guys see there in your bulletin, today we're going to start a new series through the book of Revelation, or at least part of the book of Revelation. And we look at the letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And as we begin the series, let me just say that if you are expecting me to answer all of your questions about Revelation and eschatology, you will be sorely disappointed. In this series, again, through chapters 2 and 3, we look at Christ's words to the churches as they experience growing persecution and opposition. The book of Revelation, as a whole, shows us the resolution, right, the end of God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ, where Christ returns, destroys Satan once and for all, and where he judges the wicked, and for his people, he gathers them to himself. All of his people from the ends of the earth and where he wipes away every tear caused by sin and suffering. The former things have passed away and God dwells with his people forever. Where they would be his and he would be theirs. When John wrote Revelation, John also wrote the Gospel of John as well as 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote in the late 1st century and by then... He and the Christian church had already seen persecution. So if you think about the book of Acts, for example, you have, let's say, the two great leaders there of the early church. You have Peter and then Paul. They had already died. They had been martyred for the faith. In fact, by the time John already, John wrote this letter of Revelation, Paul and the uh, the twelve disciples who had laid the foundation of the church, out of them, only John was alive. And when it comes to John himself, he was exiled to the small island of Patmos in the Mediterranean. And he was exiled there. If you look, if you turn in your your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, you see there in verse 9, he was exiled on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It was there on the island of Patmos where Jesus Christ himself gives John the revelation. You look there at 1.1, it is to testify to the things that will take place. And then to to prepare His people for His own second coming and the end and the events that would would eventually take place. Jesus here, He gives gives these letters to the churches, addressing them in their current situation, urging them to steadfastness and perseverance in Christ. These, these, uh, the whole book, and in fact these letters, were to be received not just to the church that he addresses specifically, but to all of the churches. There were circular letters. They were supposed to be circulated amongst the Christians. And really these seven churches that we're going to look at over the next handful of weeks here through the month of June, they stand for all churches. They represent all Christians and all churches. So imagine, picture receiving these letters... Not just the ones addressed to yourself, let's say, if you're the Ephesian church, which is the first letter, it was written to the Ephesian church. Imagine receiving that letter and then the other ones. It would have been life-giving as the highest commanding officer, that is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is all sovereign, reminds you that He is the one who has you in His hands. You can imagine there as great persecution was erupting and it had certainly already erupted by the end of the first century, which is when John had written this book. Here, what, what life-giving words this must have been to be reminded 
that you look there in 1.8, look there at 1.8, that Jesus himself, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the one who outlasts all governmental authorities, that king who possesses all authority and all power protects his people, even in persecution and death at the hands of your persecutors. That's a good deal of what the symbolic language there portrays to us. You look there in 116, look there also in 120. 116 says, in his right hand, right? This is sovereign authority there. In his right hand, he held seven stars. The seven angels representing the seven churches. 120 says there that he holds the seven golden lampstands, which are the seven churches. Who are these angels? You know, are they literal angels or are they symbolic angels referring maybe to seven main leaders of the seven different churches? You know, I'm not sure. They're not sure. Commentators aren't sure. At the end of the day, though, these seven angels, whether they be symbolic or real, like a heavenly counterpart or something, regardless of that, right, they represent the seven churches and the seven churches represent the entire church. And these Churches themselves are called lampstands. This is interesting language. If you're familiar with biblical language for the worship of God in the Old Testament, well, the lampstand was in the most central chamber of the temple where the worship of God took place. The high priest would go in only him before the presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant was along with this lampstand. And there before God, in the presence of God, was this lampstand with the seven lights These lights were in the very presence of God, before His throne, so to speak. And who was it that walked in the Holy of Holies, maintaining the lights and tending to them? Well, it was the high priest, who of course represented all of God's people before God. What is the significance? Well, you look there in 2.1, and we're about to begin our passage, but go ahead and look there in 2.1. Who is it that walks amongst the lampstands? It is Jesus, who not only holds the seven stars in His right hand, But he also walks among the seven golden lampstands, making his presence known, tending to his lights and his witnesses. That's language of intimacy. So not only is he absolutely sovereign, holding the churches who are suffering. So if you're suffering, right, this is Jesus holding you in his hand. But he's also intimately aware of what's going on in your life. All the going-ons, all your works, and also the posture of your heart. In this series, we see Christ urging His people, once again, to persevere in the faith. And as He does so, as He speaks to us even today, He speaks as the Sovereign One, again, intimately aware of all that His people are doing, but then also struggling to do. Let's look at the first letter here, Christ's letter to the Ephesian church. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, 
that you have, uh, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Point number one, we see Christ's encouragements here in these letters. We're looking at this particular letter to the the church of Ephesus. We see Christ's encouragements. They are defenders of the truth. Point number one, Christ's encouragements, they are defenders of the truth. You saw that there. What are they doing? They're battling for the truth. They're defending truth. The fact that Christ praises them for defending the truth is really encouraging, actually. Paul the Apostle, who spent a, a good amount of time in Ephesus with that church there in the book of Acts, we can read about this, he warned them, actually, that, that uh, false teachers and fierce wolves would come in and prey upon them, spitting false teaching, trying to lure them away. You can see that in Acts chapter 20. Same with 1 Timothy. Timothy eventually became the uh, pastor there in Ephesus. He warned them, too, about the false teaching. There was certainly a lot of false teaching going on there. Ephesus was a major city in that day. It was large. It was a major intersection of trade. You can imagine all sorts of people, scammers, false teachers were there as well. Some of these false teachers were known there, as you see there in our passage, as the Nicolaitans. We'll come back to them a little bit later. But these folks were known for, it seems, for their idol worship, most likely in Christ's name. But you see the Ephesian church's response there. Verse 6, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is not to say that the Christians themselves hated the people, but they hated what? Their works, it says, their works of idolatry, we know, and immorality, just as Jesus Christ did. So praise God that they are commended by Jesus for their diligence in actually defending the truth. They could not bear with certain folks within the church, right? That's, that's what's going on there. They couldn't bear with these false teachers that had somehow crept in, these false wolves that had somehow crept in. And so what do they do? It says there in the Word, they tested them. That is their claims, that is their character, and they found them to be false. That is liars. You know, in all of this talk, if you're visiting with us, I know it can sound like incredibly intolerant, right? I mean, they find, they're finding these false teachers and they find them to be liars, that is, teaching things that are not true. You know, many people might wonder, well, why couldn't they just teach anything that they want to? Why can't they just teach anything they want to? And we see, the, we see people kind of taking this approach when it comes to things like today's motivational literature, maybe. Let's say the author, they just want to maybe publish their own approach for what worked, them to, what worked for them to gain motivation, and they're seeking in some sort of way, in some earthly way to try and help these people. But you, you realize, friend, that this actually doesn't work for Christianity and Christ, who is at the center of Christianity. Just as it doesn't work to have other people describing you, your character, what you stand for, your actions, just as it doesn't work to have other people defining you incorrectly, however they might choose to define you, regardless of the truth, regardless of the facts, so it is with Jesus Christ. So it is with his identity, his character, his accomplishments, and what he stands for. 
Christ is a real person who lived and died on the cross to save sinners, to give them, to grant them, those who repent of their sins and believe, forgiveness of sins, to gain for them, to give them reconciliation with God, their creator. He is a real person. So, of course, we want to speak accurately and rightly about this Jesus. Again, just as you will defend the truth about your own loved ones. That's what's going on here. So it is good that Christians defend the truth about Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have been called, actually, to hold out the true Jesus Christ and His death on the cross that pays for sins, forgives us of our sins, and frees us from the power of sin. And if we get the message wrong, like just imagine, right? If we get this message wrong, well, what's at stake? We got Christ's reputation as the Lord and Savior? I mean, that's compromised. If we simply let anybody teach whatever they want to about Jesus, we got the salvation of sinners, right? That's at stake. If others came along and said, no, that's not the true Jesus. He's just one among many. He's just like yourselves, actually. You too can become God. If you just think hard enough, you will become God yourself. You realize that if the gospel is true, which of course we believe it is true, then this would be endangering other people's welfare. This would be actually also betraying the one and only true God, the true Lord. It's He whom, according to the Bible, God says that we have rebelled against Him. That is the truth. We have sinned against Him, and we have earned for ourselves just judgment. He is holy. He is just. He is righteous. But instead of judging sinners immediately, He he delays that for a different time and says, Look, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pursue you. Even though it's your hearts that ran away from me, I will pursue you in love and seek reconciliation and even bring reconciliation. So where all of our hearts have gone astray, God himself is the one, like the perfect father in heaven, the only perfect father. He pursues the wayward. And he sends us Christ, the eternal son. Jesus Christ takes on flesh He lives the righteous life we should have, obeying the law of God perfectly because only He can. He is righteous. He dies on the cross bearing the wrath and the judgment that we ourselves deserved so that what? So that those who turn from their sins and believe would be freed from their sin. Spared from judgment. Forgiven of their sin. And then adopted into His family where we would know, where we now know the peace of God and the love of God. Three days later, of course, he gets up from the dead showing that judgment is no longer over his people. He wins for us salvation. He grants us pardon from sin, wipes away our guilt and our shame, restores us to our own creator. That is what is at stake here. Salvation, ultimately for the glory of God. That's why we can't let people simply teach whatever they want to teach. So we hold out the truth week in, week out. And the truth is for you, friend, if you turn from your sins and believe those promises that he gives us, you too can know if you repent of your sins and believe you will be saved. This is where the Christian is coming from, our perspective here. So we're not obviously trying to offend, unnecessarily offend anyone. Just want to help everybody understand that this is what Christ calls his churches to do. That is to defend the truth of Jesus Christ. The Ephesian church was doing quite a good job, right? Christ himself commends them for these things. They patiently endure these things, this type of suffering. But while Christ had encouragements for the church, he still had a rebuke for them, and a very serious one. 
though they were fervent defenders of the truth, they were unfortunately deficient in fervent love. This brings us to point number two. This is Jesus' rebuke. They are deficient in love. Look there at verse 4. He says, but, it's very serious language here. I have this against you, a formal charge against you, that is them, the Ephesian church. What is it? You have abandoned the love you had at first. He seems to be talking about fervency or zeal or wholeheartedness of their love. It's the love for Christ that they had at first. There's that emphasis there. It's the love that they possessed when they first became Christians. You guys remember what it's like when you guys first became Christians? Or maybe even in your own experience, even if you didn't have such fervent love in the beginning, maybe you knew it at some point in time in the past, I want you to think back to that time when you yourself were fervent in love, whether at the beginning or at some other time. In the beginning, right, you thought that, wow, God's grace is amazing. His forgiveness just picks you up because you know that he's not going to abandon you, but instead he forgives. His sacrificial love that makes him enter into a covenant with you, even though you didn't deserve it, that sacrificial, same sacrificial love that has him go to the death on the cross, holding out that love for you. Isn't that so humbling? Do you remember those times? His love that secures us until the end. There we find such rest, even as we face our own sins. You remember God's character, his mercy, his love, his compassion. That's so compelling. And so we are therefore moved to fervent love, to fervent service of God, to fervent worship where we love God, we're loving his worship. You know, we're at church, we're worshiping God together with his people. And we love his people. We love worshiping Christ with Christ's own people, staying up late maybe, having fellowship having awesome talks about the love of God for sinners. And we love those outside of the church. We want to witness to them about Jesus Christ. We want to do them good. Out of a genuine desire to see them know more of the love of Christ and for them to be helped in a way that reflects the love of Christ. You guys remember those times where you were walking in the Spirit Perhaps the number one reason why our love wanes, right? They had abandoned, lost the love that they had at first. Maybe the number one reason why they and us, why our love wanes is the creep of the ordinary. The slow creep of the ordinary, or at least what we think is ordinary. It is where the extraordinary becomes ordinary to us. Where the highly uncommon becomes common, all too familiar. God forbid you guys do not use God's name in vain, but this is what is at the heart of using God's name in vain. It is the extraordinary being used as the ordinary, as a cuss word. A word that's just simply a throwaway word where you don't really mean anything of it. This happens with everything. That happens with with all sorts of stuff. Let's just get really practical here. Um, as many of you guys know, we, we wanted to uh, beef up our home security, and so we decided to get a cute dog. Uh, a second dog. 
there have been, you know, our next door neighbor, he got his truck stolen. There was reports that someone was even in our own property looking around. Who knows what, what was going on? So we ended up getting another dog, right? We got this, bring home this uh, Doberman, which we hope would grow to like, I don't know, a few thousand pounds. Be a nice security dog. And um, in the beginning, you know, we're bringing him home. He's cute. He's super cute. We might run to feed him. We might run to pet him. We might run because he's so cute in the way he barks and give him all this love. But you know, you know what one of my kids said the other day? And it is a sentiment that I share as well. The dog was doing something annoying, and, and one of the kids said, I hate this dog. On day one, everyone's, we love this dog. On day, I don't know, two or 15 or whatever it is, I hate this dog because of the inconvenience. Well, the thing that we had such love for one day, at some point in time, simply becomes, the thing becomes ordinary. The love and the service that we gave to it, we've lost. Again, this happens with everything. It happens with us as children. You can think of the presence that you had. You cherish one day. Then the next day, it's going in the trash because you don't like it. Then you become a teen. You get a new bike. You might wash it and polish it. Or at least that's what I did. And then the next moment, you're throwing it on the ground because you want to go run away and have some, go hang out with your friends. Think of your cars. Think of your clothes. Think of all the things that you give yourself to. You just eventually lose the awe and the wonder the same thing happens, sadly, and in our sin, with God and the gospel. And we experience the slow creep of what we think and have, sadly, in our sin, determined to be ordinary. When it comes to the Ephesian church, their situation isn't described in detail. We don't know exactly how it happened or what's going on, but we can picture the, their own slow creep of the ordinary. Situation number one, imagine this. Maybe in all of the necessary disputes that they were having with false teachers inside of their church. right? And they're disputing about these types of truths. Truths about Jesus freeing us from our sin. Jesus commanding us away from idolatry. His death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, the need for holiness. Those things, maybe they eventually became truths that were used to put the smack down on their opponents. Maybe they're using those truths once again because they do this every single month. Can you imagine the church discipline going on there? They're using those truths to simply win an argument. Maybe this happens in your own life where you come to discover the absolute sovereignty of God and His grace in salvation. And then you might hear that somebody else doesn't believe that. Use those truths in a harmful way, maybe in your attitude, to kind of win an argument. How do you not believe in God's sovereign election? And soon enough, maybe your love for the other person has waned or disappeared. Here's another situation. Maybe they were suspicious of anybody who seemed to hold unbiblical teaching in their mind. And so maybe, again, their hearts grow cold in love. Another situation, maybe they gave in to being, let's say, argumentative with others. They forgot that even though this dispute needed to happen, where they're talking about the truths of Jesus Christ, they forgot that they still share the love of Christ to those who need it. How important would this have been if they were disciplining people from the church? You can imagine how discipline becomes, sadly, sinfully retributive. They want to get back at people instead of restorative. That seeks the salvation of one who even refuses to believe. 
regardless of the love that they had at first, loving God and loving their service and their worship to Him, those things had waned and their love became colorless. And even if we may not be needing to defend truth in our own church here from false teachers, you know that your love can wane as well. Think about corporate worship. Back when you, the love that you had in the beginning, maybe you were excited to gather to worship Jesus, to hear the word of God, to sing his praises. At one point in time, you loved it. But maybe nowadays, you know, you think it's still a good thing to do. But I wonder if you find yourself absent more and more. Whether physically absent, even though you could come. Or mentally, spiritually absent. And then then eventually corporate worship just kind of falls off the radar. Maybe you find yourself saying, you know, we got to go to church again. It's so far. It's so early. This song again. And we're going to hear the same message again, basically. It's a message about the gospel. Maybe that's you thinking that the worship of Jesus and the supernatural gathering of God's people by His grace is ordinary. Think about your love for others. Maybe once you were on fire for your fellow church members, wanting them to know more of Jesus Christ for themselves. But now, with the inconveniences of COVID and everything else, you find yourself just thinking about yourself. What about those outside of the church, your non-Christian friends and your non-Christian family? Maybe you say, because you lack love, I don't want to rock the boat that I'm sailing. The boat towards comfort. The boat towards good good relationships. I don't want to rock the boat that I'm sailing mess up the direction I'm going towards comfort. I just like saying hello. I like shooting the breeze for a few minutes with the other parents that share the same hobbies or uh, who have children who share the same hobbies as my children. I like shooting the breeze for a few moments and then simply leaving. Guys, you realize that if that's you, that could be that your love of Christ has fallen off the radar and that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That is no small thing. That's a big deal, actually. It's such a big deal. You look there at verse 5, that Jesus gives a warning of what? It is judgment. It's judgment. There in the middle of verse 5, repent and do the works you did at first, or else I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's serious language. This seems to mean that Jesus would come and judge them for their lack of love. Now here, I think it's it's, uh, pretty clear that they were living in this pattern of a lack of love, okay? A pattern of a lack of love. If you struggle with ungodly condemnation and guilt and shame uh, or your own self-righteousness and you want to try and work towards your sin here, I don't think he's talking about like, you know, the one-off situation. This is a grave situation here. This almost seems like a pattern of lovelessness. And so he, he issues this warning of judgment. Now, I don't mean to let off those who slip, because you know that once you slip, you start going down the slope. But here he says, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. This seems again to mean that Jesus would come and judge them for the lack of love, and the church would be no more. It's not true that genuine Christians would lose their salvation. That's not what he's saying here. 
We know that God preserves His true people until the end. But we also know that those who are truly Christian persevere until the end. It's in Matthew 24. He tells people there, a day's going to come where a whole bunch of people are going to lose their love, but it's only those who persevere until the end. It's those people who will be saved. In Christ removing their lampstand, it seems to be some sort of temporal judgment. If they have no fervent love for Christ and serving Him, they would lose their status as a church. So, what's the solution? Point number three, what's the solution? We saw the encouragements, we saw the rebuke. Now, following on the heels of the rebuke, what's the solution? You look there at verse 5, he says there, Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did before. Back when their love was fervent. Back when they were living in the Spirit. Back when they were walking in the Spirit of Christ. This here is an appropriate remembrance here. Thinking back to when one's love, when your love, when your love for Christ in the beginning was wholehearted, it was zealous, and you were on fire and sold out for Jesus Christ. This was when Christ and serving Him was, in fact, on the radar, and in fact, the very target. How far then have we ourselves fallen if we are, thinking about corporate worship again, gathering with the people of God for the worship of God by His grace, but that's just become tedious. And we'd rather complain that, man, we have to worship Jesus Christ instead of actually taking the heart posture that rejoices knowing that we get to worship Christ. Having been freed to worship and serve Him, freed from our sin. Guys, you remember when you lived those days with vibrant conviction? Those days when you were excited to gather with God's people to open the word, rain or shine, to sing His praises, to hear about that cross again in Christ's blood that cleanses every stain of sin by His grace alone. Remember those days when you marveled at the fact that God had chosen you to be an object of His sovereign grace and love. Those were special days, weren't they? Those were days when you were filled with the Spirit of Christ that you might live for Jesus Christ. I don't bring this up to make you remember or long for those days as if the goal is to live in some other time. That's not the case. What what is the key to our perseverance is remembering the love we had at first. And we want to live in that love, loving Jesus first and foremost, and living in Christ's love, today where we are right here right now and the key again to persevering in this remembering certainly starts remembering from where we have fallen that is the love that we had at first the zeal that we had at first for jesus and serving him says what it says there remember from where you have fallen but another key is to remember christ who raised us up in the first place Christ who gave us those works in the first place. Christ who enabled our hearts to love in the first place. And I think that's why the book of Revelation starts the way it starts in chapter 1. So for the rest of our time, in terms of the solution here, we're going to look at five truths of Christ. Christ who is our object of love. And remembering Christ who raised us up and gave us the works in the first place, 
that's going to help us persist in doing what we know to be right. Truth number one, we are to remember Christ is Lord and He is worthy. Turn over to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. I encourage you, actually, just go ahead and read the whole book of Revelation this afternoon, but read especially chapter 1, and you'll get more of the sense of what I'm talking about. We are to remember Christ is Lord and He is worthy. 1 verse 8. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. First letter of the alphabet, last letter of the alphabet, Greek alphabet. It is He who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so to trifle with Christ or to treat Him like a dog, as if, as if you can take Him or leave Him, or as if you can take the worship of Him or leave it, you realize that we are messing with the wrong person. We don't even treat our family that way. We don't even treat our friends that way. You don't even treat your clients that way. But you know who and when we treat people that way? It's when we're trying to decide if they will benefit us or not. If we think they still happen to benefit us and our own goals, then sure, we'll take them. We'll use them in an opportunistic way if they're useful to us, or we leave them if they are not. Christian, let's be reminded according to the word here, according to the Bible, the Lord is worthy. He's worthy of all power, all glory, all honor, as the one who, whom all things, through whom all things were created. The one for whom all things were created. He is the creator and the king, the judge of all the earth. That is what Revelation says. And he sustains the universe by the power of his word. You flip over to Revelation chapter 4, you see what, what the heavenly beings are singing to this great Jesus Christ. You look there at 4.8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. It is he who sits on the throne. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's 5.13. We could, we could go on. This Lord calls you to repent if you have lost your first love or lost the love you had at first more accurately. He calls you to turn away from your sin and to love and to serve Him, to do the works you did for Him at first. Works of love, works of service. Those works when your love was fervent. Friends, if Jesus has fallen off of your radar, let me encourage you to examine what your new target really is. Where your, what your desires are locked on to. I mean, who would you rather be knowing? Think of relationships, girlfriend, boyfriend. Who would you rather be knowing? What would you rather be securing? What would you rather be doing? Where would you rather find satisfaction? Are those things, or is that person going to deliver you from your sin? I guarantee you that that job, that relationship, that family that you've always wanted, that money, Friends, those things are powerless to save. Jesus Christ is a good Savior, and He never fails. He alone is worthy. Christ alone is worthy. He is the Lord, holy and righteous. And in His power, He has defeated sin, death, and Satan. And He alone can deliver you from your sins. Second truth about Jesus Christ, 
Second truth about Jesus Christ. Christ is our Savior. Look there at verse 5 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5. Here John's writing the words of Jesus Christ to the churches. He is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. What's His heart posture towards us? He, it's, it's one of love. What has He done? He has freed us. How has He freed us from our sin? Through the manner through the instrument of his own shed blood. Christian, are you overwhelmed by the love of Christ for you? Though you sinned against him, yet in love, God gives his son for you. Jesus goes to the cross for you. You know the, how the Bible speaks of, of your own story of sin? How your own sin separated from, you, from God? Earned for yourselves just judgment under his holiness and, and wrath and judgment? You know that there was nothing that could free you from the pit that you dug for yourself and the tyranny of sin that reigned over you. You know that you were dead in your sins and transgression, but God poured out his mercy and love and compassion on you to save. Christ took the burden of sin that you carried, the punishment that you deserved, and he freely bore it himself. He took your burden so you would know freedom in Christ. And though you, pre-Christ, though you wanted nothing to do with God, Christ nevertheless gives you a new heart and His very own Spirit to dwell with you. Pre-Christ, before you came to know Christ, you ran from God. You ran away from God. But yet God, in His Son, pursues you so that you would be His and He would be yours. Christian, what are you doing to prevent yourself from seeing that as ordinary let me encourage you guys to think about these things the gospel salvation god's sovereign grace think about these things force yourself to think about these things every single morning as one pastor encourages he says look think about these things even before your heat your feet hit the floor think about those things and pray that you see Christ every single morning and have Christ, your Savior, guiding you every single moment of the day. Third truth about Christ to remember. Third truth about Christ to remember. Christ has saved us so that we would worship God. One five. One five. He has made us for what? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, verse 6, and made us, let's emphasize verse 6 here, not 1 5, 1 6, he has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. What do you think you've been made for? Do your desires reflect what Jesus made you for? Does all of your effort and your works on earth here reflect that Christ has made you for a certain something to minister to God? to minister on behalf of God? To what, to what degree does your life sh reflect and show that you have been made a priest for God? To minister on His behalf to others. He has given us, right, a, a ministry of reconciliation, Paul says. Or do you see yourself as working, doing works to build your own kingdom, which is what got us in trouble in the first place? God has prepared for His people works to do in advance. Praise God, He has given us a job description, and all of this, God is directing and moving to accomplish His plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. He has made us priests unto God. 
How, how encouraging is that too, to remember that Christ is walking amongst us. He knows us. He knows our hearts. And He brings us before the very presence of God. Thinking back to that Old Testament temple language. It is Christ who walks among the lampstands and knows us sovereignly as He holds us in His hands. And also, it means judgment for those who refuse to repent of their sins. But there also is this idea of this intimacy. The works that you do, again, how do they reflect that you've been made to be a servant of God? Fourth truth, fourth truth, Christ is our only hope. Thank God that even when we get it wrong, even when our love wanes, He's there to speak truth to us, to rebuke us, to warn us, and to help us look to Him in whom we have hope. Verse 7, verse 7. He holds out this promise. This is chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2. Even though their love is waning, he says, Look, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. These images, of course, point us to the end of Revelation, where God's people enjoy unmitigated and intimate fellowship with God, where there is no sin. They inherit eternal life, as in eating from the fruit of the tree, Symbol for eternal life, life in covenant with God and eternal salvation. Though Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, that garden paradise, where they were in fellowship with God, we know that at the end, though, or through Christ, God restores man back to fellowship with Him, all by His grace. Christ is our only hope. And friends, if you find your love waning, Christ is your only hope. If we repent of our sins and believe he promises to the one who conquers i will grant to eat this brings us to the fifth truth christ is our conqueror christ is our conqueror lest you be fearful and that your own will is sometimes not so strong and knowing that because of sin our love wanes praise god that at the end of the day we are conquerors in christ the victor the conqueror 1 John 5, 5 says this, Who is it that overcomes the world? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Christ is the Son of God? This conqueror language is very clear and, and regular and persistent in chapters 2 and 3. To the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, God will give them eternal life. He says it in this kind of way. He says it in that kind of way. And then you look at 4.21, or sorry, 3.21. 3.21, he says there, to the one, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You look over at 5.5, five, you look over at 5.5. Five, five. It says there, weep no more. Middle of 5.5, five, five. weep no more. So who is it the one that takes away every tear, all the sadness from sin, and suffering throughout the course of history. He says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So remember him. And remember what it was like when you first began to love and serve him who conquers over sin, death, and Satan on the cross. Remember him when he first drew you out of the pit and raised you up with Christ and gave you wonderful works to do for His glory. Remember too how you were on fire and you knew how others needed Christ as much as you did, and so you ministered to them, having fellowship with your brothers and sisters in the church, trying to encourage them in the Lord. 
Remember too how when you were on fire for the Lord and you wanted to love others who didn't know Jesus and share the gospel with them. And friends, as you remember and trust in Christ who conquers for us, who overcomes evil for us, who died on the cross for us, remember and then repent. Turn from your sin and do the works of love and service to God for the glory of Jesus Christ. And in persevering by His grace, we will show ourselves to love Christ, be lovers of Christ. And thank God, He says, in Him, we will inherit eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that we would have a big vision of who you are, that we would see you in your holiness, in your righteousness, and in your love, that we would behold again by your Spirit your acts of great love and sacrifice, all by your sovereign grace as you died on the cross to save sinners who didn't deserve it. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and that you would help us grow in our understanding of your great love which at the end of the day cannot fully be explored because it is that great. But Lord, we thank you that we do know your love truly. And so Lord, we ask that you would take us deeper into it so that we might know more of your love and know more of who you are and that we would persist in doing the things that please you. Help us to repent, God. We pray, Lord, that where we know we have let our love wane, We pray, God, that where we have pursued worldly things too much over and above what you want us to do, or we confess these things, we acknowledge that they are sin. We pray, God, that you would recalibrate us according to your will, that we might live more according to your word, and that we would further please you. Show us, Lord, where we are tempted to let go of pursuing you in in different areas of our lives, whether it be family life or personal life or even our own hobbies and work life and everything else. We pray, Lord, that we would have an overarching desire to love you, to glorify you in every facet of our lives. These things we pray in your name. Amen.